Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Please Hustle Responsibly podcast. Um, I'm Christina Beltrude, and I'll be hosting this week. Here with me is my co-hosts, Christina Magro and Matt Cole. And our guest today is Marie Cheslick. Well, thank you for having me. What an honor. And, you know, I've always seen what you guys have been doing in Chicago and seeing what you guys are doing now. And I've always admired it from afar, even if I haven't told you all the time. But I'm always admiring you from the comfort of my own home. So thanks for letting me be on here. It's a very cool opportunity. I think that we're all really honored that you're joining us today because I'm going to speak for everybody. I think we all admire what you're doing <laughs> from well, the comfort of our homes too. Um, so we're super excited to talk to you about not only your experience in hospitality, but also in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, first, I'm going to do a quick check-in with everyone. Um, Magro, how are you? What's new? <laughs> What's going on? What's the 411? Um, how am I? I'm I'm good. Everything's good. I made some Christmas cookies yesterday with my friend Asa. Um I decorated for Christmas and um I was trying to be more sustainable this year, so I got a fake tree. Um, but then I got like an incense, like um essential oils thing to pump out like evergreen scent underneath <laughs> the tree because I'm a psycho. Um, <laughs> it smells good. You can't fight it. It's necessary. I feel like since this year's been so trash that I had to like up the holiday cheer, you know? Okay. <laughs> good. How are you doing, Matt? Uh, I'm good. You know, just been staying busy with work and, uh, you know, figure it out how things are going to be moving forward and trying to navigate this pretty tumultuous times, but things are going pretty well and I've been very fortunate to stay busy and just, you know, getting ready for the holiday seasons, going to look for a tree sometime this week. Nice. Nice. Audrey, how are you doing over there? Good. I am unemployed. Uh, <laughs> Which is actually the first time during this time that I've been unemployed. So I'm really lucky that I was employed for so long and now um gonna figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> um Marie, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh I'm gonna combine Magro and Matt's comments by saying we are going, yeah, full bore on the Christmas spirit. Um my <laughs> girlfriend Corinne loves Christmas and I didn't know this about her but like she's got the Disney plus on we watched like a movie for children godmothered with uh, Christina Bell and it was really cute and charming and the whole place smells like pine needles and we got the we have a fake Christmas tree too uh it took 15 minutes to set up which I really like because like after like an hour or two of like setting up a big tree it's just I lose interest so I'm happy to have a fake tree uh, I'm also happy to be busy right now. Um, I've got two gigs going on, so thankful to be busy with work, but also come home to a Christmas spirit, a Christmas miracle. <laughs> it's nice. Awesome. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and yeah. um, where you're working, what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> My name is Marie Cheslick. I am 28 years old. I've lived in Chicago for about 10 years now, and I love it. It's my home. I 
always found ways to connect with it, whether it's my occupation or charity or volunteering or something of that matter. It just is a city that runs deep for me. It's a city I love giving back to. Um, and it certainly connects with who I am as a person. I'm born a people person. I've always known I wanted to work with people. When I was young, my parents always asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. At first I told them a chef and my dad, very supportive. <laughs> we, we took some cooking classes together and I, I knew in my heart that it's a good thing. I, it's a good passion, but it's not a good career, right? I was like, well, I you know, want to travel. I want to do all these things. And cooking is fun. I want to keep it fun. I don't want to necessarily like make it my career. So how do I connect the kind of the passion that I had with that, with the people aspect that I enjoy as well. And nursing seems like the best option for me. I went to UIC in the city, University of Illinois in Chicago, uh, went to nursing school there and worked in restaurants while I was in nursing school. Uh, first hospitality job was a host at Hub 51 in River North. <laughs> it was a ton of fun. Uh, they have a they have a tap at the host stand. So like you could pour people beer while they're waiting for their table, which I thought was like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I think that's really cool. Oh, I, I mean, honestly, I still think that's really cool. I'm like, yeah. that's a good idea. Like, don't put the pressure on the bartender. Just a uh, host can learn how to pour a beer, you know? It's, yeah, you're hours, here's a beer. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it makes people happy. It's clever. And I really cut my teeth there. <laughs> Nothing like working at St. Patrick's Day at 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> in River North and oh my god and meeting drunk people at 11 <laughs> o'clock in the morning it was sort of amazing and navigating that and I had I knew in my heart if I was having that much fun at that job that it was probably something I should keep on the back burner in my life so graduated nursing school at UIC worked at Northwestern Memorial in Streeterville uh, for a couple years I really enjoyed it but I just knew in my heart that uh, I was better suited in restaurant world, better suited connecting with people through food and beverage and hospitality as opposed to healthcare. Uh, maintain, you know, all these things are objectively important, you know, diabetes maintenance. Um, and uh, we work with a lot of heart and lung transplants and all that stuff is, you know, <laughs> objectively amazing. But I just found myself being happier working in restaurants. So. I knew I wanted to take it seriously after nursing school um, and after working at Northwestern. And I found that wine would probably be my best shot <laughs> at having a career out of hospitality because I could still work front of house. I still got to connect with people. Uh, but I also got to focus on intensely the, the marriage between food and wine. And wine was something I didn't know really anything about. But I was like, this would be a fun thing for me to pursue, to learn about, and started from there. I worked at Elska uh, most recently and started there as a server and worked my way up to the wine director there, um, Elska being the Michelin-starred restaurant in the West Loop. And I learned so much. Kyle Davidson was the beverage director when I was there, so... He opened up, I know I, all of you are nodding your head, <laughs> all these parts <laughs> uh, But those who don't know, like I didn't know, he was one of the people who opened up the Violet Hour, the very famous cocktail bar. And 
he has an amazing palette. He's really clever and also a total Zen master. Like he just always kept his cool all the time. And that's something I really admired about him. And learning from him, especially wine, uh, he's got such a bartender mind, which I think is unique and special in that he focused certainly on flavors and palate, but he really focused on texture, which is something I never would have really started with, especially learning about wine, but being like, this wine feels flabby, like, or it has a big, it has a big mouth feel. It really coats your mouth. And I'm like, okay, but who cares? Right. But <laughs> Kyle wasn't having it. He was always good about being like, there's acid to this, or there's um, length to this, or there's body to this. Right. So I think I had a really unique perspective just starting and then I built on sort of this traditional wine sense went through the court of master psalms got certified uh, within a year pretty much right away when I started at Elska just to prove to myself also <laughs> that I could do it and honed in my table side I don't know it feels like comedy improv you feel like you're on a stage you know like you're there to make people happy and I love that uh, but it takes practice you know and it takes practice getting used to being your most genuine self in front of people sometimes. And I found that it came very naturally working at that restaurant, working with uh, Dave and Anna's food, working with that really small wine program. It all came together really nicely. And I feel like I was traveling at warp speed and it felt very cool. Uh, but now with COVID, you know, not there anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> trying to figure out what was next, trying to figure out where I fit in this puzzle um, in a way that I wasn't really stepping on anyone else's toes or taking business away from anyone else, right? And I was trying to ask myself what that looked like. I always felt that there's great wine out there and there's people who are interested in wine, but there needs to be an education aspect that is uh, approachable, accessible, financially or otherwise, and uh, fun. I just didn't see a lot of stuff that was a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of it is book learning. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of note cards. It's like being in nursing school, which is like not fun, but you do learn a lot. <laughs> and so I wanted to work with people I worked with before, Danielle Norris, who sold me wine through Cream Wine Company at Elska. Um, and uh, one of the server sommeliers there, Kyla Peel at Elska. We all banded together to create something fun because I knew all of these people had professional experience within the industry, knew what they were doing, knew how to talk about wine, but more so, they are a lot of fun. They are people I'd want to get a beer with. They're people I'd want, I would really trust. And I felt like that was something that was missing with wine was there's a lot of people who know a lot of things and I respect them and they are mentors in my life, but I don't meet a lot of people who are like total goobers and I need more goobers in my life. So <laughs> it felt like a really easy way to have fun with it. It was like having people who made me laugh and having people who, who get it, who know how to work hard, but also know how to laugh. Yeah. So slick sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Is that your story too? <laughs> I would say we're a modge podge group of goofs over here too that know how to work hard. Maybe yeah, that's why I like you guys so much, you know? We're all we all attract each other to our silliness. I think it's nice. I think it's refreshing. And I think it's necessary right now too. Yeah, I mean, I I I think I met you a few years ago when you 
were just starting at Elska mm-hmm. and like really taking those steps into wine. And mm-hmm. um, at that time, I was also working in the wine industry mm-hmm. and I absolutely loved the company I worked for. Like those are people that I would definitely get a beer with, but no mm-hmm. matter how like unpretentious you're trying to make wine, because like we all know, like it's been a pretentious industry forever. Like mm-hmm. it's so hard to actually make it approachable and fun and accessible and I like I mean I told my boss right away I was like that woman is the one that you like she is the next sommelier that you need to like start approaching and like going to change Mm -hmm. the industry so for me it's really exciting to see you doing that and especially in an education aspect because I think that it's so necessary Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you. It was just trying to, like I said, there's cool wine out there, but people don't know what to look for, don't know what to expect. And there's a huge pretense with it too. People don't want to make a wrong mistake. I mean, about anything in life, (laughs) but particularly like, you know, pre-COVID you're at dinner, whether it's a business dinner, family dinner, whatever, and you have to pick a bottle of wine, there's always some <laughs> giant chip on everyone's shoulder for it because there's no, there's no way to really effectively communicate about it. You trust the SOM, you trust the person who's running the program to kind of do it for you, but there's a huge gap missing and it's fun to try to tie it all together. Yeah. Cool. So um, Slick Wines came mm-hmm. through this terrible time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what are y'all doing right now that, um, I, when did you start this? Was this an idea that was already like happening? COVID? <laughs> uh, no, this was, <laughs> so, um, I stopped working at Elska in June and wanted just to think about, well, you know, I can work as a nurse. That's, you know, which is a, is a funny privilege to be able to work right now, but particularly work at a hospital on a COVID floor because all of the hospital floors are COVID floors right now for the most part. Um, and I could have done that and I would have probably been just fine with it, but I felt like I had a good thing going. I had good momentum with Elska and I wanted to keep it going. Um, I mean, my brain kind of came out as a wine club right away, but like everyone and their mother has a wine club and I'm not necessarily going to do it maybe any better than like Red and White does it or Altogether Now does it. Like all these people have really great, thoughtful wine clubs. And I kept thinking like, well, you know, again, don't want to step on anyone's toes. Everyone's trying to just do what they need to do. I don't really need to be further competition. What is the piece that is missing? And um all the folks at Tenzing, um, especially the wine folks, so like Ken Fredrickson and Fernando Pateta have been mentors for me, particularly in, in the Elska realm. So I called Fernando and I was, you know, bouncing ideas off of him. He goes, well, you know, the most valuable thing you have is the service aspect. So you should extrapolate on that in a way that's a business. Like, don't focus on a product. Don't really necessarily focus on selling wine or being retail or being a wine club. Focus on who you are as people and sell yourself as your labor and your expertise. And that'll probably play better for you. So thinking about that, sleeping on that for a couple of nights, 
this is how Slick started. I was talking with Kyla about it, uh, my coworker Elska, and realized that Danielle Norris would also be an incredible asset to it. And those were all women I enjoyed hanging out with. So it was sort of born after when I stopped working at Elska and trying to figure out where do I fit in this Chicago puzzle of wine, which is <laughs> a small but mighty crew. Absolutely. <laughs> you, know, you, you probably find that in, you know, uh, the bartending world a lot too, I'm sure. It's all, you all know each other. You're all homies. You're all friends. You want to support each other. But where's your certain voice? You know, where do you, where do you stand out? Where do you excel at? And for me, it's people and teaching, which is very similar to being a nurse. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, I want to rewind a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so at the start of the shutdown, um, were you, I mean, obviously like everybody had to close at the same time. So I'm assuming that Elska closed in March. We closed, yeah. So we closed in March. We closed in April. We were, and then we closed in May. And then we got an email saying that we were going to open in mid-June, which was about, <laughs> they sent out the email about a week or a week and a half from when they said that they wanted to open. And for me, that was a thing where I was like, okay, well, I've been working in a hospital <laughs> and, you know, um, not only is this like kind of a scheduling issue, but like, I would be curious to know what you guys are doing, you know, for safety and like, I'm willing to help, you know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't reopen in general because it's your business, but um, I just have concerns and I would like to hear what y'all are doing to make it as safe as possible for us and as well as the guests, right? I know we had a great outdoor space, you know, so I knew there was a lot of wiggle room to be like, I bet we can do this, um, you know. Are we gonna put plexiglass up at the host stand? Are we going to provide N95 masks? We had some, um, we had some employees who, um, or they had some employees who lived with high risk people, like their grandparents, I'm thinking one person in particular, living with people and it's like, okay, like this guy needs to work, obviously, but like, how do we do this in the best way? And, um, for me, it was, for me, it was hard to hear because I kept hearing the same things I was hearing from a lot of other people, which was, we're going to do what the CDC says. We're going to do what we can, vaguely. <laughs> I was like, okay, I know this restaurant. I have, you know, I would like to hear specifics about what exactly you are doing, but, um, it was just the timing with when they wanted to open, all of the stuff we had to cover, um, you know, certainly safety issues, but I wanted to know in my heart too, just me as a person, like, are we gonna address any of this civil unrest that's going on right now either? Like we have black employees, employees who are people of color. Um, I'm just wanted, you know, it would be cool if we could have an open conversation about that before we open as well, as opposed to just, jumping right back in and pretending like everything's normal. Uh, and I was met with a lot of resistance and I was met with 
a lot of stress um, from ownership, which I can understand. And I can understand why there was so much stress with trying to reopen. You know, it's the balance of we, this is our livelihood. They literally live on the third floor. You know, it's like we put everything into this and we need this, right? And said, so I get it. Um, and I want to be a part of it too, but I just, I, maybe it's thing I've changed in the past couple months or working in the hospital changed me, but I just expected a lot more. And I saw what Jason Hamill was doing over at Lula. And I always like, he's sort of my North star of like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, we know. all feel that way. Like yeah, totally. every sure. time I'm like angry about something or like feeling like the industry is hopeless. I'm like, but Jason, <laughs> like, if I had a prayer altar in my house, it would be of Jason Hamill. And like, I've never even met this guy. And if I was Jason Hamill, I'd be like, this woman's so weird because like I girl over him so much. And I feel like I bring him up a lot in this podcast. <laughs> But he's, he's, just, he's doing a great job. He's of, just a glowing example of like, yes, this is my livelihood, but I'm protecting my staff at all costs. A hundred percent. I mm -hmm. just, God, I like, and so also, much respect. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's, he's had a business for 20 years. Like maybe that's something that has like to do with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's done maybe. like his hiring practices have always been dope. He's done farm to table because mm -hmm. it's the right thing to do, not because it's trendy. Like everything he's done is, I don't want to say it's ahead of the curve because everything he's done is because he is a good person. <laughs> yeah. It like, just like exuberates into his spaces that he mm -hmm. has. And mm -hmm. I like genuinely wish that there were more owners out there that followed his lead. Yeah, he's a he's a great example of just like good leadership too and experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, it certainly comes from his experience. I'm sure he's made mistakes in the past too, but whether you want to open up your restaurant or not, you need to have this incredible level of communication that I think that ownership doesn't always have in the restaurant world. Um yeah. And all, I, all I've ever worked for are, all I've ever worked for are chefs who are owners as well. Um, and I think there needs to be a level of understanding of you're a great chef, you're a talented chef, you make Michelin star food, but that doesn't necessarily translate to you being a good leader or a good business owner. Um, and I, when I see sometimes with when chefs open up restaurants i'm not trying to harp on all chefs obviously here but um i think it takes a certain level of i guess i'll say it again communication and a level of okay i want to open this is exactly how we're going to do it let's have a conversation if anything concerns you or you go jason hamill route which is i don't feel good about opening up these are all the reasons why let's have a conversation about it right but it's this, it's this baseline level of Say what you want because it's your business. There's a way I would run it. There's a way that Christina Magro would run it. There's a way that Matt Cole would run it. There's a way that Christina Veltri would run it, right? But I think there needs to be way more of a conversation before just shoving people back into the workplace and being like, okay, wear a mask, wash your hands, good luck. Hey, you're, you're so right. <laughs> you're so right. And I mean, to speak to what you were saying, like 
the 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 chefy lack of communication. I think coming up in an industry where you know violence and abuse was almost like glorified mm -hmm. has made a lack of communication such an inherent thing. Whereas like you know you start cooking and you've got your chef yelling at you like this is my way, this is my way, this is my way. So it's not an open level of communication. It's a this is what I say and this is what goes. Right. And that's not that's not a way to be successful. It's not a way to be a leader. Mm -hmm. That's a way to be a tyrant. You know, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's not healthy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's not, it's not healthy or helpful or good. I mean, so you, you look at Jason Hamill, who's willing to like talk to his staff and like take their, their voices into consideration and into eventual like acting upon things like that's leadership. Right. That's, that's operating with your team and not put, putting yourself on a position of, infallibility like you're a member this is your team this is your family this is who you're with mm -hmm. you're not some omnipotent fucking like know-it-all you're just a fucking dude making food totally <laughs> we're all just dudes making food you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> also having the self-awareness that like no matter how much your staff loves you or like feels comfortable with you there are going to people be people who actually don't feel completely comfortable being the one saying like I don't feel comfortable right it's like mm -hmm. you know, I think we've learned that a lot of people in the restaurant industry are empaths so mm -hmm. like, we understand the weight that is on keeping your business alive and keeping people employed so like not necessarily everyone's going to stand up and say like I don't think this is a good idea I don't feel comfortable even if you are receptive to the idea which a lot of people are not let's be honest mm -hmm. um like I think that it's really powerful to just say I mean do exactly what Jason did where it's like you know what I don't feel comfortable I don't think that a lot of my staff feels comfortable and they're best interest is what I have in mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we all love it. <laughs> I, I think in, I think in the beginning of reopening too, everything kind of felt like a hostage situation. Like, you know, we're all in unemployment. We don't know, we don't necessarily know like what's happening with that. How long is it going to last? Like how long are the benefits going to last? Are they going to go away? Which they did. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, do we need jobs and are they still there? And what's going to happen? What's, what happens if, our job offers us to come back and we say, no, do we lose unemployment? Do we lose our, our position? Or are we going to have a job to go back to? What's the job market going to look like in the next couple of months? So it's like, and you're telling your ownership that you don't necessarily feel comfortable with these things. And you're like, okay, well, we'll find somebody else who is looking for a job right now. Sure. Or like, this isn't going to be available for you in the next couple of months. And it's just like, well, what do you do then? So you go back and you work in an environment that you don't feel safe in. Mm-hmm. That's what I did, and then I got COVID. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, see, that's interesting, right? So people have the choice, right? Like, in that moment when your boss tells you something that you don't believe in, <laughs> mm -hmm. either you leave or maybe they'll fire you just for, you know, they don't want to deal with you, or you, you just go back anyway because you have to. You have to, you know, make money or whatever it may be. Um, but <laughs> you got COVID. I felt like a very extreme amount of pressure to be like the fearless leader, you know, like mm -hmm. I, uh, my staff 
was like, we need jobs, we need to work, we need money. And mm -hmm. the whole time I was like kicking and screaming and was like, this isn't right, I don't feel comfortable, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. But still like me being me, I put an insane amount of pressure on myself. Like no one's putting it on except for <laughs> me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, you know, you have to do this. Like if these people are willing to do it, like you should be willing to do your, you are the general manager, like manage mm -hmm. this shit. Mm -hmm. And then I got COVID the end of the first week of me going back. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, this is my life. Like anyone who knows me is like not surprised at all. They're like, mm -hmm, yep, of course. Well, of I course also think like uh, this is a lone wolf, right? Yeah. It's like the bar, a bar is the highest risk place you can be in America right now. Too. It, it just bar. feels unnecessary. Like the whole time I was just like angry on the inside because mm -hmm. I was like, you can walk. 30 feet to the Whole Foods and get any of these three Floyds that you would like. And mm -hmm. like, you can go get your slice of pizza pretty mm -hmm. much like any, it's not that we're, it's not like we're reinventing the wheel over at Lone mm -hmm. Wolf, you know, like you, can, <laughs> you can pretty much like do whatever we do there in the comfort of your own home. And then also like being in that area with that clientele was extremely challenging. And that's all I'll say. Sure. Yeah. Sure. sure. It's, it's yeah. And, well, it, it talking about that. Like, I, I was rereading uh, the piece that you wrote uh, yesterday and this morning. But you wrote that like in hospitals we assume everyone has COVID, but in everyday life we assume no one has COVID. Mm -hmm. And that's like such a thing with people going back to restaurants and bars. They're like, okay, well, this is scary, but mm -hmm. I need someone to bring me my glass of wine and bring me. <laughs> this bread with cheese on it because i have no way of doing this for myself <laughs> <laughs> sure yeah certainly i think people uh especially right now people are over it people are over the whole damn thing and mm -hmm. that was a level of comfort was going to restaurants and it's so ingrained i think particularly for our generation as a part of pop culture is like this food wine beverage industry I think Anthony Bourdain really spearheaded that in a lot of ways mm -hmm. too, where it was like everyone explored their natural human curiosity through food and beverage. And it was a really powerful thing and it's really cool. And that's part of the reason why I got into this world as well. Uh, and I think people miss that a lot. <laughs> I miss it a lot. And so people will mm -hmm. make excuses for themselves to say, Hey, you know, it's really hard. I, you know, even if you're working, Corinne, my girlfriend, she's working from home. She has been since March, you know? So it's like, I haven't really gotten a break. I'm still working full time. I just need, I want that level of service. I want someone to take care of me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I do want someone to bring me that glass of wine. I know I can do it myself, but yeah. it sure is nice when Christina Magro does it. <laughs> I'm just going to see Christina Magro. Right. I'm blushing. I don't know if you guys can see. I miss going and being behind the bar. I miss it so much. And I ha I've realized that I have, unlike you, Marie, I have a very specific set of skills. <laughs> like this is like all I have. 
So sure. most people that's that's the case for most people, I imagine. It's strange to have to survive right now. You need multiple careers in very different fields. That's not fair. It's ridiculous even. Um I'm really happy that Matt Cole brought up the piece that you wrote and um i also was rereading it yesterday mm -hmm. and this morning but i would love for you to talk a little bit about that i also really encourage um our viewers to read marie's piece called um the virus is capitalism the vaccine is empathy we'll put that in the info cool yeah, so I wrote that piece in July. So that was after I'd stopped working at Elska. <clears throat> I was sort of processing everything that was happening. <clears throat> I, was, I wasn't working at a hospital at the time either. I was really just taking time just to process my next steps on what I was going to do. I'm sorry, and, I one question. How quickly did you react to like going back to nursing and mm -hmm. jumping back in to healthcare to like sure. age during this time that it was really necessary. Sure. So yeah, the timeline is that Elska closed in March, mid-March. I started working at the hospital late April. I needed to catch up on some back-end stuff. This, all, all the licensures, I needed to re-up some stuff just because I hadn't worked in a hospital in a while. I had to recertify like my uh, advanced cardiac life support classes. There's like all these classes you have to take and it just takes time, all these like, bureaucratic logistical things. Um, and so I pretty much started working right away in late April and started at St. Bernard, which is a hospital in Englewood. And uh, I took that job, honestly, because it paid the most money, frankly, you know, and it was like, I have a car, I'm just going to go. I don't know anything really about this hospital, but I'm gonna go check it out. Um, and the piece I wrote in July was based on that experience. I was there, my contract was only for five weeks and that's all I needed there. <laughs> that was all I needed there. Um, it was a very intense hospital. Um, Englewood is one of the hardest hit zip codes for COVID right now for a lot of reasons that we can go into another time. <laughs> but um, the hospital was understaffed and over capacity all the time and this was in right april may um so when i was writing that piece <clears throat> i was relating it to that saint bernard experience and when i i really wanted to have the balance of anecdotal which is something i wasn't really seeing a lot of in the social media sphere even like the news sphere um nurses were kind of scared to talk about any of this um a lot of the nurses uh have have worked with these hospitals that they've been working at for a long time and there's usually repercussions for these things and <laughs> i find from my own personal experience like whenever a nurse has social media they will never post about anything about the hospital it's always personal and it's always private because there is this fear of your job looking at your social media and being like you broke hipaa which is like the patient protection act um because you posted this photo and their patient information's in the back and we have to fire you. Like these situations do happen a lot. So I think there was a lot of fear of talking about what exactly is happening in the hospital. Uh, I remember New York Times, there was a woman, a doctor out of New York who was filming what was happening um, and just 
filming what was happening during COVID at her hospital in Brooklyn. She got fired for filming that video and then releasing it to the New York Times. So I think there was fear in that. And uh, I wasn't working for a particular hospital at the time. So I felt like I had, I was a little safer because <laughs> I could just go to another hospital and they need nurses. They would hire me sort of thing. And I wasn't releasing any specific patient information. So the combination of anecdotal, um, but I also wanted to be mostly statistical because I think saying what you feel is important, but I also think people need hard numbers in situations like these to sort of have a trajectory of what potentially could happen next. You know, there's a science to this that I think is important to respect. So I started out the piece as anecdotal, telling a little bit about some of the very traumatic things I saw and I haven't seen since, but I have a feeling with the second wave kind of hitting full force, we'll start seeing them again where people would bring, you know, and I guess this is probably a trigger warning for some people because a lot of the things I saw were pretty gruesome, um, like a cooler in the back uh, where we put dead bodies um, because the uh, the morgue in the hospital was so small and only can really fit like five or six people. And I remember one night in particular, my patient had died <clears throat> and I had taken him to the cooler and the cooler was full and there was a security guard there and I had to ask him to help me to like reposition dead bodies to like fit this person in this cooler, which is sad, traumatic, um, especially because a couple of days ago or a week ago when I had them, they were talking, they were on oxygen um, and just that week later they weren't and it was it's hard to see that stuff obviously and i think people need to hear that it's important it's important to know that for some people this is very serious yes lots of i do send a lot of people home yes a lot of people do get better but there's still people who are very much dying from this and it's traumatic it's sad hospitals aren't equipped for these sorts of things i also in my piece wanted to relate it to super spreader events too because i had to see the parallel with hospitality and the hospital. <clears throat> and super spreader events are essentially, um, the example I gave was from the CDC in Oregon, there was a choir practice and someone was asymptomatic with COVID. They all did a choir practice together, which lasted about an hour. So you're singing, expelling pretty much COVID out of your lungs into the room. And something about like 88% of people, um, you know, hard to know if it was exactly COVID, but 88% of people got sick, malaise, you know, COVID-like symptoms. People who got tested, got tested for COVID and were positive. So we have to assume that most of those people were also COVID positive. And asking myself, why, <laughs> what is the difference between working in a hospital and being all gowned up, having all your stuff, being all ready to go versus serving a serving a person in a restaurant. I felt safer working in a hospital than I did working in a restaurant. There's a level of, uh, you let your guard down <clears throat> when you're in a restaurant, certainly. People get drunk, certainly. They take their masks off. They wanna forget, they wanna have, and they wanna feel normal. They wanna enjoy their night, I get it. Uh, but there's a very high level, <clears throat> there's a very high level of risk with uh, going out and particularly drinking. And that's why bars and nightclubs are the highest risk right now is because close space, close talking, 
people getting drunk. Um, restaurants, not as high of a tier, but still a high risk area. So asking myself and sharing my story with people on the hospital versus hospitality and what I felt like was the safest thing at the time and still supporting my people, my restaurants, the people I care about to order takeout, no excuses sort of thing. Um, but I was rereading it too. I actually haven't read it in a while. <laughs> so it was interesting going back. I felt like I was reading it for the first time. And, uh, you know, a lot has changed since July, which seems kind of crazy too. Like certainly, you know, certainly wouldn't necessarily um, go out to like a restaurant right now, but um, I still had hope <laughs> that restaurants would be able to be okay if we just ordered enough takeout. Um, but I'm finding more and more that like, we need some real serious leadership, <laughs> government intervention, probably. I don't think it's fair to put it on the individual anymore. I don't think it's fair to be like, this is our fault because we're not ordering enough takeout. <laughs> like that's not the problem. The problem is that in one state, in one city, everything is closed. And in another state, in another city, everything is open. And then you have places like Chicago, um, and uh la where it's like well we're gonna close at a, we're gonna close at 10 p.m or whatever and it's like why does that make any sense why does that <laughs> and i call that a lack of leadership i don't think leaders know what to do there's i don't envy being a policymaker right now there's probably a lot of very hard decisions to make um but it doesn't make anyone trust anyone, you know, like if LA is doing it like this and we're doing it like this and New York is doing it like this and none of them are working, what are we supposed to do? So <laughs> I'm sort of in the camp of like all or nothing being like open everything and just, you know, if you want to kickstart the economy and, you know, get money rolling, then do it. <laughs> or if you want to really do something beneficial for public health and reduce hospital strain, then close everything. Mm -hmm. but it needs to be the whole country it can't just like yeah the problem with there being so much independence per state because mm -hmm. i mean travel is relatively i mean extremely inexpensive right now mm -hmm. um so like the fact that you can just like go to a neighboring state or even a few states over and mm -hmm. do exactly what we're telling you not to do is not allowing anything to get better, which like we, when I was still in the restaurant, like mm -hmm. uh, a coworker and I discussed how like even just the city and the suburbs are just kind of like pivoting of like shut down open. So like you can just go from one place to the other and we get so much business from the suburbs that like, even if we're in a shutdown, they're open. Mm -hmm. So if you open back up, like you're really having like people that weren't quarantining, weren't social distancing, like mm -hmm. there's just as much risk. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, yeah, I think the balance for policymakers is, yeah, economy versus public health versus hospital strain. Um, and I'm really nervous <laughs> because this is my world about the hospital strain. Um, it was really real before. It's really real now. 
And the hospital I'm at now in Oak Park, I don't know what they're going to do. They just keep losing nurses, like whether they get sick or they quit because it's too, it's too challenging. The patient ratios are too high. Um, a normal nurse patient ratio would be like four patients or five patients for one nurse. And I got seven patients last week and one of them should have been in the ICU, but we didn't have room for it. Well, it's not that we didn't have room, but we didn't have staff. There's rooms available, but um, it takes an enormous amount of staff to staff a hospital, especially in the ICU. Um, sometimes it takes one nurse for one patient. So if you have 20 beds in the ICU and they're all one-to-one, -one, as we call it, then you need to have 20 people day and night, seven days a week. That's hard, you know, especially when nurses, staff nurses aren't getting paid as much as they should, and some of them aren't getting even hazard pay. Some of them are getting their holiday hours reduced. So even if people do mostly get better, um, there's still going to be people who need to go to the hospital. And there's still people who would have very easily gotten better much faster um, if they just had the hospital space, you know? It's like, this is sort of a, you're like, okay, we'll put them on oxygen and we'll, we'll watch them, you know? And that happens a lot at the hospital. It's like, okay, women with X, Y, and Z, you know, maybe like diabetes, unstage renal disease, um, gets COVID. Okay, throw her on oxygen. She'll probably be okay in a couple of days, right? But if you don't have that, that woman runs a much higher risk of something happening to her. So it's like, <laughs> I, I don't know what we're going to do about hospital strain and staffing. And that's my concern. And that's why I'm more in the camp of shut it all down for a month. Um, but I've had conversations with lots of different people like this too. And I don't want to say, I don't know, because if, you know, I ran, if I was Lori Lightfoot, if I was running the city of Chicago, I would do it a certain way. Just like if any of you opened up your restaurant, you would do it a certain way. And there's a power within that. But I think we need some serious government intervention right now to really facilitate one way or another. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> How's that, people? How's that? It's just like, I mean, nobody, nobody that I know has the same like perspective or experience as you. So like, even though I was already in the same camp as you where I'm like, mm -hmm. shut it down. We need mm -hmm. government assistance. We need all of this. It's like, and knowing everything that you're saying, like, mm -hmm. it's just, as soon as you really hear it firsthand or experiencing it firsthand, like it's just mm -hmm. so much more powerful and like so much more heartbreaking that like there's even question or. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, also some people can't stay home. Some people run the bodega down the street and have to stay open. So it's not only like shut it all down, but you also have to pay people to stay home, which is uh, unfortunately a very radical idea for a lot of people. Sure. And it, it rings to the idea of like AOC, who is like someone I admire, but like someone that also half the country hates. <laughs> so, so us, people in general have a hard time all agreeing on the same thing, but especially when it's America right now, when we're all our own worst enemy and we've politicized a virus, uh, it feels, if, I don't want to say hopeless because there's, I don't believe in that, but it doesn't feel good. 
It feels really bad. <laughs> like we'll never figure anything out. I think this will just continue like this until we get a vaccine. I think restaurants will close. I think businesses will close. I think it's going to be really hard. The vaccine will come. So, you know, I think most people will take the vaccine. Some people won't want to take the vaccine. And then that's going to be a whole nother slew of problems. It's we're in this for a minute. Yeah. We're in this for a while. And I want to help my friends. I want to help Lula. And I do that through my own individual ways and as well as even through Slick, just like trying, we'll, we'll pair up with Slick Wines with other restaurants to sort of promote them and do it in a way that helps them make more money than us. <laughs> like we want to support them. Uh, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried. Um, who was who the chef who just wrote about um, it's too late to save restaurants? Did you guys read that? Edward Lee of the Lee Initiative, I think is oh, yeah. it was. And, you know, he's someone who I find a very positive chef influence in the world. And um, his Lee Initiative is a charity that's helped so many people. Um, and for him to say something like that, too, is like, okay, like, I know it's been dark, but it might get darker. But what, what helps me and keeps me going, again, is like, it's hard to read all this stuff on the news. It's hard to read this stuff all the time. It's hard to go to the hospital and work there and then come back home and work on my small business. <laughs> uh, but um, there is a power of individual people. And what brings me hope is talking with the people I meet every day, whether they're patients, whether they're people through Slick, both give me such a kind of wild insight where the patients will Patients and people who want wine services right now both want to feel normal. You know, there, wants to, there needs to be this level of normalcy. There needs to be this level of compassion, empathy, um, and a willingness to really put yourself out there to make people laugh. Um, I'm not like a comedian by any standpoint, but I think there's a huge power in making someone smile. And the day-to-day -day of that is the thing that gets me going. I know that sounds cheesy and I don't even know how we started talking about this, but I'm sure this happens all the time on this podcast, right? Like, what the hell are we talking about? What the, what the fuck is this bitch talking about? <laughs> I would say thank you for saying that because that is like something that really bothered me is um, I got COVID and it's an extremely isolating experience and the way that people react to you, like after you say that like, oh, I have COVID, like the empathy and the concern about the individual who is sick goes out the fucking window and everyone's like well what about me like who did you see last where did you get it like how did you think you got it like well mm -hmm. what did you do wrong et cetera, right. et cetera. and i was like i i genuinely can't think of like anything else that we could have done to like sure do it better and like let me just put you at ease like I am immunocompromised so like mm -hmm. blah 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 and so it's your fault oh, <laughs> thank god you know and then like no one like only you know a handful of great people that are really close to me reached out but the majority of people like after they found out the information that they needed Mm -hmm. didn't even ask me like how are you how are you feeling are you okay it was just like okay i have the information that i need i think that i'm going to be okay right you know, please don't die bye you know and it's just like yeah 
And I just remember like sitting in my room for almost three weeks, um, like not even being able to like go upstairs and use the kitchen. So like living out of a cooler, Mm -hmm. um, just like, I don't think I've ever felt so weirdly alone for something that I felt like I didn't really have control over. And then for me, like the hospital that I'm closest to kept sending me home because my like stats were not low enough, but I was like, (laughs) you weren't sick enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, oh my God, I'm getting sent home to die, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was like really weird. So like for anyone who's like sick to be able to have like just a glimpse of hope, a glimpse of laughter, or or for somebody at the very least to just treat them like a human being, Mm -hmm. like means a lot. And I feel like a lot of like, uh, I I feel like no one really talks about that is it's like, man, yeah, thank you. Thank you for Thank you for being you, Marie. <laughs> well, thanks for being you. I think <clears throat> that's a that's a sentiment I, I hear a lot. You're not alone in voicing that opinion. And that's not the voice we hear first. <clears throat> because like you said, people are concerned about themselves first, which <clears throat> is very human of us. It's very natural of us. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, and I find one of the funny... I'm going to say funny. One of the funny skill sets I've learned as a nurse is developing a really dark, terrible sense of humor. Like, honestly, because you see so much awful shit. Awful shit happens all the time in the hospital. And there's a balance of like, yes, process it. It's a real thing that happened. You should cry about it. You should, you should have a moment to sit with it and be uncomfortable with it. But there's also a major skill in being like, okay, this is really fucked up. We need to laugh about it. Otherwise, we're all like not going to make it, honestly. And it's hard to do that when you're by yourself. It's hard to do that when you're in your own head, especially when you're sick, when you're sick with COVID, particularly if you're in the hospital. It's a really scary place to be. But we, it's asking a lot of people, um, asking of a lot of people to say that you should consider your friends and your neighbors first. And I don't think that's a natural thing. And I think people hear that and they don't want to hear it because it's, you know, uh, exhausting. (laughs) People need to worry about themselves first. Right. Um, and I'm not sitting, I'm not sitting here being like, I'm altruistic. I have it all figured out. Like there's days where I don't get it either. And there's a days, there's days where it's really hard and I don't have that balance either, but I find a lot of hope in people and that's what I'm seeing in COVID too. And what's happening right now is it's, it's hard and shit's low, but I come home to a Christmas miracle. (laughs) I come home to my two cats. I come home to someone who loves me. I talk to my friends who love me. I talk to them on the phone. We make each other laugh. I talk to my family, my friends and, that's the stuff that makes it okay. And you need to have both. And as much as it's easy to focus on all the bad stuff that's happening, and I (laughs) don't take this lightly, and I hope people hear my story as a nurse and know that I'm not just saying be positive because I also understand the frustration with that too, being toxically positive in these situations, but I think you need it. 
I think everyone needs it. I think all of you need it. I think I need it too. <laughs> <I think. laughs> but yeah. yeah, I'm a big old tendy. I'm a big old chicken tender, you know, I'm tender at heart. I can't help it. It's just who I am. But uh, yeah, I think, I think we all are here too. <laughs> I knew I liked you guys. It's just that easy. <laughs> I was told in the beginning all of this that I would benefit from having a little less empathy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who told you that? I'm not going to say. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, just, just be less human and everything. Was it an employer, perhaps? Uh, it was someone who was above me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And well, I was like, you know what? That's the story of my life. But here we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love exactly how empathetic you are. <laughs> That's a that's a really terrible thing to tell someone. I'm sorry someone told you that. <laughs> Honestly, well, I don't take people's shitty advice. You know. Yeah, you, so. yeah, you sure fucking don't. Yeah, you sure. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like, look at what we're doing. Right. <laughs> like, so gonna put all that into support staff. Right. And... You know what? I think I might just start a podcast about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um cool well i don't want to take up too much more of your time this has been like so enlightening absolutely amazing it really really has made me feel a lot better just knowing mm. that there's actually good people out there because i've been in the restaurant like i i feel like i haven't stopped and mm -hmm fact that people are over it is so true and mm -hmm. so apparent and mm -hmm. heartbreaking <laughs> yeah um so i just have a few more questions yeah for sure um i'm gonna start with this one because i don't i want to end with the most important question <laughs> but, okay um what do you think the future of hospitality looks like? And this is like in an ideal world where right. everything's perfect and everybody mm -hmm. feels mm -hmm. cares about each other. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I continue to think about um, sort of what I'm gonna call the C-suites or the leaders in hospitality in general, the business owners. And you know, this is not unique to hospitality. There are bad business owners in every industry. There's bad business owners in the hospital. You know, people who own these hospitals maybe are also <laughs> bad business owners in some ways. But in a, in a field where um, it takes every sort of labor, um, emotional, psychological, physical, um, incorporating soft skills, which we call communication, I'm going to call empathy as well. Um, are all valuable things, whether you work, you know, in a hospital or you work in technology, you work in business, those are very valuable. And we need to remember how much it takes <laughs> to use those efficiently and to make you be a really excellent hospitality professional. Um, encouraging things, some of the things I've been seeing, like what y'all are doing, encouraging good mental health, as well as like physical health. I see people like Bobby Stuckey out of uh, Frasca Food and Wine out of Boulder. He's a master SOM um, who's also a very avid runner and he really tries to promote, you know, taking care of yourself at home as well. Things like that um, where our leaders need to be 
better communicators. We need, we need 20 Jason Hamels in the city of Chicago. <laughs> uh, the vaccine comes out, I think that we need to like get a cloning <laughs> That'd be ideal. That'd be ideal. Um, just having people who know, bosses who know how to talk to their employees in a way that is creative and meaningful. And creative meaning like, you want to do what's best for the business and it might not always be contingent on what is best for your employees, but having the creativity of having a middle ground and what does that look like? And how can you make this be a win-win situation every time? And that's something I try to do at Slick too, is like, how do I make this a win-win-win for everyone and worth, worth everyone's time, right? And less, less, authoritarian style of I'm the boss. This is my business. This is how I'm going to run it. Either you can buck up or you can leave because fuck that. <laughs> Exhausting. So, and I see that, I think it gets a pass in hospitality a lot because there's not a lot regulated. It's like the wild west, right? In the hospital, <clears throat> you have to have licensure to do certain jobs. You have to be you know, certified every, you know, year or two for certain things. And in hospitality, there's zero of that. Even in, you know, wine world, you can be certified as a SOM, but you, it also doesn't really mean anything. You can also not be and be successful too. Um, so that's, I think, part of the fun of hospitality is the Wild West aspect of it. But there's probably some good and some regulation and some you know, maybe mandatory classes that other people have to take in other industries to make people better at their job. I have to do it as a nurse. People have to do it in the tech world. You know, mandatory meetings. It's okay. Make them do it. I know it's a strain on the boss too and on leaders, but it helps everyone learn. And I would like to see more of that. Absolutely. Continuing education. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and also like at the very least, like de-escalation training, like <laughs> you know, for especially for like bar management or like <clears throat> I don't know if you guys saw, but like there's a group of barbers that are all like taking mental health, like mm -hmm. mental health classes to be better about like intervening with that, especially with the people of which they're cutting their hair, which tends to be black men mm -hmm. um so i think like every industry should do that but especially yeah. the hospitality industry because we're like unpaid therapists all the time mm -hmm. and instead of like putting somebody in a harmful situation maybe you could do the opposite mm -hmm. definitely but definitely i think that's i think that's that was one of the most thoughtful answers to that question we've gotten yeah <laughs> what do other people, what do like other people say um free beer and pizza for staff meal. <laughs> that's like giving pizza to, to nurses and everyone's like i want to raise like i don't yeah. want a fucking pizza are you kidding me i want pto i don't i don't want pizza no, I'm just kidding. We've had a lot of good answers. Yeah, like employee, more employee-run businesses, mm -hmm. more like small businesses, less large corporations and large restaurant groups. Sure. Um, better um, hiring practices, mm -hmm. four-day work weeks. Sure. 
employee employee owned is interesting too and i haven't seen any of that of like a you know it's like way leaning to the left but like a co-op-y kind of deal yeah um you guys know scott kitzmiller he always talked about doing something like that too it's like wouldn't it be cool if like it's funny you say that Mm -hmm. We tried, me, him, and Moni were trying to do that exact model oh, really? at a certain tavern very close to us. Uh, Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> and uh, we put that on the back burner, but... Was that because of COVID or was that because of something else? Um, we, long story short, we like won the bid, we like bid out, about, we won like with our deck, which was like mm -hmm. really cool because we were up against like the big heavy hitters of this cool. city. And then our investor, like, cause that was when this all started going and our investor didn't really feel comfortable, you know, making that grand of an investment during this time and said, sure. we could put that on the back burner. We could probably accomplish that in the future when it looks a little less uncertain but it was funny because the guy who like read our deck was just like this sounds amazing but i also yeah. think you guys are crazy and we're like <laughs> <laughs> well it's gonna take some expert level communicators to make everyone happy it's hard yeah. you know there's a lot of pros but the huge con is that all of you need to be very charismatic to make it work which mm -hmm. i think you three would so it'd be cool i hope you know I hope there's some badass renaissance after all this is over and you know r.i.p danny's but like would love another danny's would love a you know what y'all are working on would love you know a new rise of what all this could potentially look like in a better sphere i'm really hoping that that does happen i keep telling myself that that will happen like hopefully there'll be an, another swing of like small businesses to like get breath throughout all of this but Yes, that's that's the route that I hope it goes. Not yeah. the other way where a bunch of like corporate monsters just gobble up all of the gems. Well, I, I think a lot of people that are similar to us and our, our views are being more mindful of what they want to do post this. Mm -hmm. uh, so hopefully that leads to a, a better and brighter community. But I also feel like the people who are like us are a little more empathetic and might be more on the verge of burning out than than you know the big corporate money guys so mm -hmm. that's a very good point mm -hmm. i have hope i'm i'm Same. looking forward to the very cool renaissance of small yeah. business i'm ready for the south song brick and mortar after all this is <laughs> i'm just saying investors still want to be out there you know yeah. promoting restaurants people still want to go out to eat that's never going to change i think you know it's hard for no, the you're right. right now but I think there's a lot of hope, especially for people like in your situation, Matt, I think you hit the ground running when all this shit, you know, starts looking good again and I'll be there. Yeah. I'll be there too. I'll even work there. Shit. I've worked the majority of the top of. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm already. Me and Beltry, number one servers. Oh yeah. <laughs> like every, every time I do anything with Sasong. I'm like, so, you know, as soon as you guys have a business. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. Um, my final question is what does your future look like? Good question. <laughs> That's a fabulous question uh, that I don't know the answer to. I will continue doing what I'm doing. Um, I'm working two nights a week at a hospital and doing slick stuff. 
on the side. I don't know which one's my side hustle yet. They're both kind of equally <laughs> side hustle-y. Um, and Slick has been really exciting in that we've been gaining a lot of momentum. We just got a write-up in the Eater, which was very cool. Um, they We did a little blurb for Punch. Uh, people are excited about us. I had a woman, <laughs> we have like a contact us page and a woman just said, hey, can I call you? I just want to talk to you. <laughs> and I talked to this woman on the phone for probably 45 minutes, just about pretty much what we're talking about now. And I told her a little bit about me and what I want to do. And she was just like, you know, I really miss going out to eat and I miss feeling normal. And talking with you made everything feel normal for a little bit. And I appreciate that. And I'm just like, well, shit, that's it. We can close it down. <laughs> we can crack it up. You know, that's it. That's all it needs to be. <laughs> I just thought it was really unique and amazing that people want this so bad. And it doesn't cost me anything. It's literally just my time. Someone just needed to talk to me on the phone. <laughs> and I'm more than happy to do that, you know? And I, I don't think... A lot of businesses would necessarily <laughs> do that. Um, and it just brings me a lot of joy and it makes me feel fulfilled and it makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. And so as long as, as I keep feeling that, as long as I continue slick and I feel like I'm doing the right thing and uh, following my heart in that way, then uh, it's cheesy because that's not why business are started. You know, businesses are started to make money. <laughs> Uh, and Are they? Shit. That's Where we're going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it genuinely makes me happy. Uh, it makes me happy doing what I'm doing with Slick and at the hospital. So Slick will continue to grow. I know, I know I just said that everyone and their mother has a wine club, but we're going to do a wine club. <laughs> <laughs> it's just good revenue. It's, and people want to support us still. And um, it is a way that isn't super labor intensive where we put all the labor on the front end and then kind of figure it out from there, right? Making packages of our blind tasting classes more accessible price-wise and otherwise. And that's what my future looks like is the balance of two jobs as well as taking care of myself and feeling very, very satisfied with it. So I'm content. Life is good. I love that. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. It took a minute. <laughs> it took some time. If you would have asked me six months ago, I don't know if I would have said the same thing, but I'm feeling very hopeful. I'm feeling confident. I feel like I've got a lot of good things going in my life and I'm very thankful for that. I love that. It's <laughs> been awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me talk about my feelings for, oh my God, an hour. <laughs> if you've made it to this point in the podcast, call me. I'll have a conversation with you over the phone. <laughs> if you've made it this far, you can have my credit card number by the end. Congratulations. <laughs> we'll just post your phone number with uh, the link to your... Yeah. <laughs> just go to... Yeah. People can just contact you. Yeah, go to slickwines.com. Go to contact mm -hmm. us. You know, there's no, there's no secrets. Just tell me how you're feeling. Just tell me <laughs> if you want to talk about anything. I'm here for that. That's fine. It doesn't have to be about wine. <laughs> <laughs>
hey, how's your day? Oh, Ellen, so good to hear from you, you know? <laughs> Waiting to hear from Ellen again. I hope she calls me back. I hope she calls her. Ellen, if you're listening, Marie's expecting a phone call. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Marie, well, we really appreciate your perspective today. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah. Thank you. And again, thanks for having me and thanks for doing what y'all do. It's inspiring and people like you keep me moving and I really appreciate it. So you keep doing what you're doing too. It means a lot. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to make Christina Magro cry by the end of this. <laughs> Put that on my bucket list. It's perfect. <laughs> All right. Only if it's a good cry. Yes, of course. Of course. No, I'm not trying to hurt. I'm not trying to harass anyone here. Just a little bit. Awesome. Um, Magro, do you want to close us out? Yeah, so thank you so much, Marie, for spending some time with us. You can visit um, the link in our info for this episode to um, read the article of which we were referring to that Marie wrote earlier. Um, and if you have any questions for her, feel free to go to the Slick website, hit up that uh, contact us. And um, if you are not looking forward to the holidays. They can also be an isolating time and a tough time for people. Our next episode will be with our um, Director of Education, DJ Watson, and we're gonna talk about some tools to help you get through the holidays. So um, thank you so much, Marie, and I'm looking forward to stalking you from afar like I always do on your <laughs> social media. Um, and I think that you're really killing it, and I feel really grateful to have this conversation and know you as a person. So thanks again. Um, we really appreciate you, and um, we'll see you all next week. All right. Thank you. Bye.